Turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in your pew or nearby. In your pew Bible, I know the number is 774. So if you turn to 774, you might get there before everybody who doesn't have a pew Bible. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. So just let us know. You can actually take that one. We'd be more than happy to give that to you. All right. So we're in the book of Jonah. And I know that when you think about Jonah, you're thinking about a big fish, probably a whale or something like that. But what I'm here to tell you is that Jonah is way more than just a book about a fish or a big fish. It is um, one of the most complex stories in the Old Testament, and it has a beautiful symmetry uh, between chapters 1 and 3 and 2 and 4 that I'll get into in subsequent weeks. But it is a, uh, a great story, but oftentimes what happens is when we get to a story that we think we know, we might not pay as much attention because we already feel like we know what's going on. Let me give you an example. How many of you guys have flown this past year? Anybody? Right? Okay. So when you're flying and the stewardess gets on and she goes, please look forward for all of the safety information for this Boeing 737 or whatever plane you're on, right? How many of you pay attention to that? Anybody? Maybe one anxious person. (laughs) Maybe, right? And so we get accustomed to that. So uh, on a flight, a recent flight, I think it was back in October, um, the stewardess gets on and she goes, somebody dropped $20 up here uh, and everybody looked up. And we're like, okay, now that I have your attention, let me go over the safety features of this Boeing 737. So she lied, but she was trying to get our attention. So what I'm trying to do is not lie to you, but I want to get your attention, okay? I want to get your attention as we look into the book of Jonah. Now, as we think about the book of Jonah, uh, it is a substantial book. We're going to read the first chapter to the book of Jonah, um, but I'm not going to get through the whole first chapter. But as we begin, would you please pray with me? Father, as we open up your word, Father, I pray that it would reveal your character that we would know more about you, we would know more about our own sinfulness and our need for Jesus. Father, thank you for the book of Jonah because it reveals our self-righteousness, our tendency to play the part of a Pharisee. Father, it reveals our anger and our hatred towards those who are not like us. And I pray, Lord, that as we look into the words of the book of Jonah, that you would do something miraculous, that you would transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be a people who wants to to move towards those who are different, that we would pray more for those who are not like us. So Father, would you help us? Father, help me to be clear. Help those who are listening to be attentive to your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Okay. So here's the thing about Jonah, is Jonah is, is this weird story where everything is opposite the way it should be. You see prophets not obeying the Lord. You see sailors worshiping the Lord. I mean, the only thing about the sailors in this, in this particular you know, passage that makes sense to me is that they had dice in their pocket and they were casting lots. Because I know that sailors love to gamble and do all kinds of things, but these guys become worshipers. Even later on, what we find is that um, the, the, this evil people, the Assyrian people of Nineveh, Nineveh being their capital, actually repent, and yet Jonah is still reluctant. And throughout the book of Jonah, oftentimes I've heard commentators say that it's very similar to Jonah playing the part of both sons in that parable that we read in our New Testament reading. That he is both the younger son who flees from the presence of the Lord, and he is also the older son, the older brother, who in self-righteous, you know, self-righteousness stands in judgment against the younger brother. But let's, let's dive in. I, I got to set this up for you so you understand kind of where we are. Um, what we find is if you have your Bibles, uh, and hope you do, you can turn over to 2 Kings. So we need to find out a little bit more about Jonah. So if you go to 2 Kings chapter 14, we find that Jonah is actually talked about in 2 Kings chapter 14. And here's what we we read about in 2 Kings chapter 14. Now, let me give you, again, I got to set this up so you guys understand what's going on. We're about 150 years post-Solomon, post-Solomon. So you know, we have David, who's a great king, and then we have Solomon. And then we see that after Solomon, the kings uh, and the kingdom of Israel is split between the northern tribes, 10 tribes in the north, and two tribes in the south. And what we find is that the northern tribes are called the nation of Israel, and the southern tribes are called the nation of Judah. So you have Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And, and what happens in the midst of all the kings of Israel um, is that the kings of Israel 
are not good guys. These are wicked kings. These are wicked kings who begin to worship false gods, who erect bales and Asherah poles and, and, and you know, have you know, crazy festivals with lewdness and gluttony and adultery and all kinds of other things. And what happens is you have this northern tribe and, and God sends prophets to the northern tribes. Some of those prophets, like you've heard of, like Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah and Elisha, Elijah in particular, who you know, comes out against the prophets of Baal, a foreign god, a foreign, foreign um, god who they're worshiping. Um, we see that Jonah is probably a contemporary of Elisha, or he comes right after Elisha in the days of Jeroboam II. Because if Jeroboam I wasn't bad enough, we might as well name a wicked king, Jeroboam II, to see what he's going to do. And what's astounding, I mean, it's just absolutely astounding, and this is setting up the book of Jonah for us, is notice that Jonah is a prophet to the Israelites, to the northern tribes in the midst of their wickedness. Now, get this. This is a wicked people. A wicked people who do not deserve the grace and mercy of God. And yet Jonah goes, and let's, let's read this in 2 Kings uh, 14. Um, here we have you know, 2 Kings chapter 14, starting in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Now, they always put like the kings of Judah and Israel back and forth, just so hist- historically we understand what's going on. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. So there there we go. That's who he is. That's his character. The people of Israel are being led by a wicked ruler. But in verse 25, I want you to see this. He restored, meaning Jeroboam II, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So the first time Jonah prophesies is he's prophesying to a wicked king, Jeroboam II. And he's prophesying and he's saying the Lord has heard all of this, but he by his sheer and utter grace that you don't deserve at all. Even in the midst of your godless wickedness, the God of grace is going to pour forth mercy upon you. And what he's going to do is he's going to allow allow you to expand your borders. Your borders are gonna be expanded back to what they once were. Because up until this point, okay, let me me give you a little bit of pre-church history here, okay? In the Old Testament, and this will really, really help you understand what's going on in the Old Testament, there are three foreign powers that that come up. There are the Assyrians, there are the Babylonians, and there are the Persians, okay? Now, the Assyrians um, are those who actually took the people of Israel, the northern tribes, into exile in about 722 B.C., 
But the Assyrians are who we're dealing with right now. The Assyrian capital is Nineveh. And so Jonah has, has he's from, uh, it actually talks about where he's from. He's actually from the northernmost part of Israel, from Gath Hefer, meaning that this northern um, tyrannical empire has been coming against Israel. And at one point, um, in Jeroboam II's grandfather, he was actually a vassal state. Israel was a vassal state underneath the Assyrians. But at this point, the Assyrians were having some problems in their, in their you know, maybe they had a Congress that didn't get, didn't get along in the Senate and all the other stuff, you know, or maybe their emperor, whatever. They had problems. And so what happened was the Lord God sent Jonah to a wicked king, Jeroboam, to say, the Lord has said that you're going to expand the territory and that he's going to allow you to reign and rule for 41 years. And so we see all of this occurring. So Jonah, this is who Jonah is. Jonah has seen the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, or the, really the, the grace of Yahweh at this point, um, work in the midst of a wicked and adulterous nation. We see this. That's who he is. You see, in the, in the text we learn, let me, let me just uh, quote uh, Tim Keller here. He says, in the text we learn that unlike the prophets Amos and Hosea, who criticized the royal administration for its injustice and unfaithfulness, Jonah had supported Jeroboam's aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence. The original readers of the book of Jonah would have remembered him as intensely patriotic, a highly partisan nationalist. That's who Jonah was, a highly partisan nationalist prophet. As opposed to, again, Amos and Hosea, two other prophets who were prophesying against Jeroboam and all of the ways that he had forsaken God and had pursued false gods. That's who Jonah is. So Jonah is this, he's like, man, he is like all about Israel. He is upheld within Israel. He is loved by the people of Israel, and the people know this. Now, let's talk about Nineveh for a second. Let's talk about Assyria. You see, Assyria... Uh, came to power, and they were one of the most, one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories, gloating over whole plains littered with corpses and of cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor Shalmaneser III is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations of enemies in grisly detail on large stone reliefs. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. After capture, get this, after capturing enemies, the Assyrians would cut their legs off, cut an arm off, but leave one arm available so they could shake the hand of the dying man in front of them. They would decapitate people and put their heads on poles and make their family parade around the, 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 the encampment. They would flay people's skins. They would stretch them out. and I mean, it's, it's a horrible, despicable, wicked thing. They burned adolescents alive. alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. The empire had begun exacting heavy tribute from Israel, and so that everyone in Israel was worried about, but also probably hated, feared and hated the Assyrians. And do you know where the epicenter of the Assyrians were? 
It was in Nineveh. As a matter of fact, the prophet Nahum. Here's a little Bible trivia. If I said, hey, what's the prophet Nahum about? The only way I remember it is Nahum begins with the letter N, and he prophesies against Nineveh. Nahum prophesies against Nineveh a little bit later. Um, We're not really sure. Commentators have gone back and forth whether he prophesied before or after. But here's the point. The point is this, is that Jonah and the people of Israel had great disdain for the people of Nineveh and the Assyrians at large. They hated them. They did not want them to flourish. They wanted them to shrink and be wiped off the face of the earth. That's the background. Now, let me give you an early application point. If we gaze upon the wicked around us and see mainly a threat to our Christian lifestyles instead of perishing sinners in need of the gospel, and if we pray for forgiveness of our sins but justice for the agents of a wicked culture, then it cannot be doubted that the pharisaical spirit of Jonah is in us. Do you think about that? Now, I might be meddling a little bit, but hopefully that's what good preaching does for us. Who is it? What nationality? What group? What partisan group is it that you can't stand? That you wish didn't exist? We need to be praying for them. As a matter of fact, what God is going to show is that he actually calls people to go there and to preach repentance and faith so that they might be brought into the family of God. You see, what happened with Jonah is that Jonah had made God just the God of Israel. And was he the God of Israel? Absolutely. But God is also the God of the whole world and all the nations. And in Genesis chapter 12, when the promise is given to Abraham that he would have as many descendants as the stars in heaven and a land that is abundant, but he would also was said that you will be a blessing to all the nations. To all the nations. And what happened was that Jonah had taken God and had reduced him down almost to the point where he was a household God of Israel where he just thought that God is only going to bless Israel or Judah and nobody else because he couldn't fathom that God would actually care for people outside the borders of Israel and Judah. And and now, and this is amazing because he is the first prophet that we see within the Old Testament that is actually sent out. Like oftentimes prophets are, are sent to the kings and to the leaders of Judah and Israel to call them to repentance and to bolster the faith. There's a twofold pro, um, you know, priorities among the prophets. It's to call the people to faith and repentance against um, false worship, but then also to bolster their faith and to talk about the promise that God had made back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how that there would be a coming Messiah and that they would have faith. But in Jonah's case, he doesn't get to just you know, prophesy in a safe place in Israel. He has to go to Nineveh. He has to go 500 miles to Nineveh. Now, this is, this is what this is akin to. Back in the days of World War II, 
When the Nazis were exterminating the Jews, this would be akin to a Jew born in New York, getting on a boat and having to go walk through the streets of Berlin, screaming out, repent and believe, repent and believe. That's where we are right now. Hated, I mean, his, his own life could be in danger, but certainly, um, this is what we find. Look, look, look back to Jonah chapter one. Now again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and this is the word of the Lord. Now, do you and I have the word of the Lord in front of us? Absolutely. We have the word of, of God in front of us. That's how God speaks to us today. In Jonah's case, you know, um, it seems like somebody's asked me one time, like, um, has, has the Lord ever audibly spoken to you, George? I'm like, and I would say, the only time the Lord actually speaks to me, I hear the voice of the Lord, is when I read the Bible out loud. And I just want you to know that the Bible sounds like a 48-year-old Virginian, you know, when I read it out loud, okay? It probably sounds very similar to you when you read it out loud. That is the word of the Lord. But in these days, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, so far so good, I got it, go to Nineveh. And at that point, I think Jonah's mouth dropped the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Their evil has come up before me. You see, that's what Jonah is struggling with, is that he is called to bring about repentance. Now, why does Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Now, we'll get there. We'll get there in, in Jonah chapter 3, but especially in Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah also knows that the God is, God is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And he knows that if he were to go to Nineveh and preach repentance and to turn away from their wickedness, that those people might relent. And then God would forgive them. And Jonah didn't want any part of that. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want them to be included within the people of God. He didn't want them to be a part of the promises of God. He didn't want that. So what does he do? He flees God. Look at, again, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish, um, at this point, if you're thinking about where Tarshish is, it is the furthest most part that you can get to uh, in the Mediterranean. The furthest most. You know, Tarshish might have been 2,500 miles by boat. You know, um, Nineveh was 500 miles, you know, over land. Today, it, uh, Tarshish, you can almost think about it being like, uh, that's it, I'm, hit, I'm heading to Timbuktu. That's how far I'm going. Or rather, um, I'm going to go get a, a plane and get, and get on that plane and go to the Kennedy Space Center. I'm going to go to the Kennedy Space Center. I'm going to get on a rocket ship and I'm going to go to the moon. That's how much I don't want to go to Nineveh. I'm going as far away as I possibly can from Nineveh. And what we find in the midst of this is that um, Jonah flees. He flees the Lord. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts, you know, by way of introduction, and we're not going to get much past maybe verse 3 today. Um, but how do you know, how do you know when it is the will of God for you in your life? How do you know? I came across this, um, this, this anacronym. Uh, for, for the term gospel. And I think this is really, really helpful. For, so if you're taking notes, and you should be, um, here, here's, here's how we think about, is this the will of God for, for my life? First, the G. 
Is it for my glory or for God's glory that I do these things? The O, have I spoken to other people, other godly people to give me direction and guidance? The S is what does the scripture say about this? What does the scripture say about, again, I'm thinking about what is the will of God for, for, for my life? You know, whose glory does it give? Have I spoken to godly people? What do the scriptures say about, about what I'm supposed to do? The P is prayer. Have I prayed about it? Have I gone to the Lord God and said, Lord, help me with this? The P is prayer. The E is for evangelism. Does this opportunity, does this um, event, does this allow me to fulfill the great commission as it happens in Matthew 28? Again, E and then L is does it lead me to a godly lifestyle? Is what I'm deciding to do, will that lead me to a lifestyle that is above reproach, a lifestyle that is emblematic of one who follows after Jesus? Does it lead me towards holiness or does it lead me towards worldliness? So again, gospel, you know, think about that. And and when you make decisions in your life, whose glory? Have I talked to others? Have I sought the scriptures? Have I prayed about it? Does it lead me towards evangelism? Does it lead me towards a godly lifestyle or not? But what we find is that God is in the business of calling you to difficult things, things that you might not want to do. And when that happens, people, including myself and probably you, actually, I know it's you, okay, I know it's you, because it's me too, we have a tendency to flee in the other direction. We, we move away from rather than moving towards what God has called us to do. How do I know that God is in the business of calling you to difficult things? Similar to, to Jonah, the, the nationalistic prophet, the son of Amittai from a northern village going to Nineveh. Well, if you look all over the scriptures, you see that God calls people to do difficult things. You think about Abraham, how God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he called him to leave his, his home and to go set up a new family. We think about Moses. Think about Moses being in the desert and God through the burning bush says, Moses, I want you to go to do something. I want you to be the voice of God. You stuttering you know, prophet, the stuttering prophet Moses that you can go and I want you to be the deliverer of the people of Israel. Or we think about, uh, here's one that maybe you haven't thought about in a while. How about Isaiah? If you read Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 20 or 24, it talks about Isaiah walking around for three years naked, prophesying. Anybody want to sign up for that? We do not have a sign-up sheet for that uh, out in the foyer. You cannot sign up to be the prophet Isaiah. Um, Or, you know, Jonah, this is a difficult decision. God is in the business of calling you to difficult things. How about... You know, Paul, Paul actually going to places that he was once revered in to now be the, really the, the, the Gentile church planting subject matter expert, planting churches all over the Mediterranean, or Peter, you know, going forward, but the ultimate one is Jesus, right? You know, doing something that is difficult, doing something that is difficult that would actually bring glory to God. Doing something that would actually reveal the grace of the Lord Jesus to those around him. 
to reveal God's glory. As a matter of fact, um, Sinclair Ferguson, when he says, what is the story of Jonah about? It is really a book about how one man came through painful experience to discover the true character of the God whom he had already served in the earlier years of his life. He was about to find the doctrine about God, which he had, been, which he had so long been familiar, come alive in his experience. Well, brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. What is the call of God in your life? What is God calling you to do? Who is God calling you to be? You know, and if it's, you know, if you're, if you're married, God has certainly called you to be together. And he has called husbands and wives to, to love one another and to sacrificially lay aside their yearnings and desires for each other. If you have children, you, you know that, that you are called by God to be the parents of this child. But even beyond that, God is, is calling you to do ministry. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you're in a marriage, being a husband or a wife, that's ministry to one another. By the way, if you're, you have children, you are doing children's ministry all the time. We are called by God for his glory to be doing ministry. I don't know exactly what God is calling all of you to do. It could be to go to Mexico. It could be on, 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 at spring break to, to work with, with orphans. It could be to work in the children's ministry. It could be to work with the homeless in town. You know, if God called you, I want you to pick up what, what you have, and I want you to move to Kansas City, Kansas, and work with the poorest of the poor in Kansas, would you do that? I don't know what God is calling you to do, but I do know this, is that there is ministry and a mission that we have been called to. So the question becomes, how has God given you skills, gifts, and abilities to advance his kingdom and proclaim his name to a broken world? Because everything that you have, if you're a believer in Christ, every good thing that you have, every skill, gift, and ability you have is meant to be used by you for God's glory, not your own. So where, what, what do you have? Where has God gifted you? And he's calling you to use that in, in ministry to bring him glory. And if you're not, you're fleeing from God. You're, you're fleeing from the presence of God. Now, there's two ways that when we flee from, from this passage that we'll see. When we look at Jonah chapter one, here's what we see. Certainly the word of God, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. There's two ways. First is Jonah does not abide the word of God. The word of God comes to Jonah and he dismisses it. Why does he dismiss it? Because he doesn't like it. Not because it's not true, but because he doesn't like it. And so he flees from God because he doesn't like the word of God. Now, here's what's amazing, because I do this, and I've seen people do this for years. If I'm Jonah, and, and, and I'm, I'm fleeing the presence of God, and, and he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, uh, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. And so if I'm Jonah 
And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to Tarshish. And he gets to Joppa. And all of a sudden, he sees a ship to Tarshish. You know what he says? Look, this must be the will of God. There's a ship bound for Tarshish. And I have enough money to pay for this ship. So certainly, if I, this is providential, right? It's providential that I get to flee from the Lord, but, but maybe I'm not really fleeing from the Lord. Maybe this is a roundabout way of me glorifying him by going down to Joppa and doing these things. This is dismissing the word of God. Here's one. I get this from time to time. Uh, just in terms of, you know, uh, relationships, you know, people who, who are maybe uh, living together or maybe people who are sleeping with one another outside the marriage covenant. And they would say something like this, something foolish enough like this, God wouldn't give me these feelings if it was wrong. Oh man, I mean, you need a shovel for what you're piling up right there. A ladder and a shovel, you know, is what you need because you're digging a hole and you're filling it with something that doesn't smell good. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, I will hear people say that. God would not give me these feelings if it were wrong. I'm telling you, that's not right. You need to look at, again, the gospel again. Whose glory is it for? Have I checked with others? What does scripture say? And what happens is when we want to rationalize our fleeing from God, when we want to rationalize what we do, we begin to rationalize the circumstances around us because every time God calls us to something difficult, he also... um, or at least oftentimes we will find a door to exit rather than do what we're called to do. Now, I'm not trying to minimize some of the pain that we have. I mean, some people are, are in difficult situations. Some people are in difficult um, marriages. Some people are in difficult situations of, of addiction. Um, and yet, we will reject his word and we will do our own thing. Secondly, it says that he actually is fleeing the presence of the Lord. In verse 3, it says, but, but a ship going to Tarshish, or Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, what's, what's amazing about this is that you can certainly run from the Lord, but you can't outrun the Lord. Like, where can you go? Psalm 139 says, if I go to the uttermost parts of the world, you are there. If I, if I go to the mountains, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. Everywhere I go, you're there. You see, we can try to remove ourselves from the presence of the Lord, but I think in this sense, here's what he means. I am removing myself from community. I am removing myself from the people of God so that I get to do what I want to do because I want to revel in the midst of hating the Assyrians. So rather than being part of the family of God, being a part of the community of God, because of my partisan hatred... I would rather remove myself from the body that I am called to be than be a part of this. And so I'm fleeing, I'm running away as far as I can to Timbuktu, to Tarshish. That's where I'm going. And what's sad about this, what's so sad about this story is that you see a rebellious prophet. You see a rebellious prophet who doesn't want to love others. As a matter of fact, what I find is that Jonah is so filled with cynicism and anger and bitterness and hatred that it's, you see it almost, it's distorting his soul. So that when you look at chapter one, if you, if you look at chapter one and you look at the Hebrew all the way through chapter one, what you find is that this word down occurs over and over again. So that 
he, he arose and he went, he, he went down to Joppa. And then after he's there, then he goes down into the hold of the ship. And then when he's thrown overboard, he goes down into the depths of the ocean and is swallowed by a fish. What's, what's again, we'll, we'll get to this eventually. What's absolutely amazing about this is that finally, when, when Jonah actually begins to become a sacrifice, literally a sacrifice, throw me over the ship, the side of the ship, that's when God actually begins to use him. When he actually begins to sacrifice his needs and wants, he actually becomes an instrument in the hands of God to the point where a bunch of pagan sailors, you know, on a ship bound for Tarshish from the, from the city of Joppa, actually, and this is extraordinary, it's actually absolutely extraordinary in Jonah chapter 1. is In verse 16, then after Jonah was thrust overboard, then the men feared the Lord, and that is Yahweh, because before they were saying, you know, let, let's call out to our gods, let's call out to our generic god Elohim. But in the Hebrew, they, then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly. And then they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What does that mean? They had a worship service on the boat after Jonah was sacrificed for them. Now, here's what, here's what I want you to, to know about Jonah as we get into this book. This is a book about how does God's grace extend beyond us? How does God's grace and mercy go out to the nations? And how does God call us to repentance are there groups of people that you don't care for, that you actually pray against, that you wish God would wipe off the face of the earth, that I think that we need to be praying for, and then we need to pray that God would send missionaries and godly people to bring about a change of heart. Because again, the prophet rebelled and the, the dice-throwing pagan sailors worshipped exceedingly. That's what we see. And what's beautiful about the gospel is that every one of us at one point was a dice-throwing pagan sailor. And somebody was sacrificed for us. And the sacrifice for us, his name is Jesus and we believe in Jesus. And if we believe and trust in Jesus, then the wrath of God will be assuaged. The penalty for our sins will be paid for, and we will be ushered into a family of God. And then we will be commissioned to go out into the world and love other people. That's the call of God. So, in front of us today is the table of the Lord, and it represents his sacrifice. It represents the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. As we come to this table, I want you to know, um, this is what the Apostle Paul in his words of institution said regarding these elements. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. And then he took this cup and he filled it with wine. This is juice. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. 
And in Hebrews, we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the one who has assuaged the wrath of God on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, either you will pay for your sins or Jesus will pay for your sins. Those are the only two options afforded us within Scripture. Will you believe what the Scriptures say? That you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That you're a sinner in need of a sacrifice. sacrifice. Would you believe in Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are thankful for this table that is set before us. We're thankful for the way that you have loved us and cared for us and died for us. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would show up in a mighty way, Father, that, that spiritually that you would show up and that we would be encouraged to live for you and not for ourselves. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be nourished, both body and soul, as we come, that we would be reminded of your grace and mercy, which flows only through Jesus. So, Father, help us. Father, fill us. Increase our faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.